This week's podcast is brought to you by Unbound Breathwork. They're getting booked more on their look than their dance ability. As a dancer, you need intense training. Unfortunately, in the casting industry at the minute, it surprises me when I see something that isn't last minute, that isn't rushed. If you're getting ballet maybe a couple of times a week, it's just not good enough, really. I can't help but say, like, Taylor Swift is easily in the top 10 artists of all time. Welcome to the ninth episode of the Free Rings podcast. My name's Stuart Bishop and I'm here with my fellow director, Bailey J. Muir. Before we dive into things, subscribe to the video, hit the like button and turn on your notification bell up top and then you'll know all about it when next week's episode comes out. So this week we'll be discussing topic one, the decline in dance training. Topic two, last minute casting. Does it really benefit anyone? And then it's Spotify rap time. We'll be discussing how data can enhance artists' careers. And because of this, Bailey's going to create an argument that Taylor Swift has had one of the best years in history. Okay, first topic of the day is we're talking about the decline in dance training. Now, the reason we're saying this is as agents, we get sent all the time CVs, show reels and over the years i can definitely say the decline um in those in that material that we're being sent is getting worse and worse now we're not just speaking there about you know oh whether it's a good cut show reel or or whether the cv's laid out right we're talking about the actual quality of the dancer and that can only be coming from the dance training now we've seen uh, a pattern shifting from actual colleges to university training, haven't we, Bailey? Yeah, this is it. It's like in the dance industry, we have these ones that we call like, our colleges, our birds, our dance lanes, that up until recent times have been private establishments. Several of them still are. Now, over the past 10 years, they've always had like their uni affiliations, of, as I'm sure most people in the industry have noticed. What were affiliations now seem to be becoming more and more overbearing, almost looking like the universities are running what traditionally have been the great courses. And with this, as well as just seeing the decline visibly in portfolios we get sent in, there's also many stories starting to go around the industry of just the drop in actually what's on the timetables in terms of quality training, how many lessons a day, gaps in a day, quality of the lessons, quality of teachers. It's like everything is just on this slow decline. Yes. So to give people a little bit more of an insight into that, when you are at a dance college, which has no university, no one interfering, and it's a private institution. So let's take, for example, when I was at college, it was intense it was half past eight in the morning with your ballet tights on and then if you didn't do your ballet class you weren't allowed to go on to your contemporary and your jazz and you know it went on till sort of you were there from half eight till five six o'clock and it was you know yes you had a lunch break but it was intense and it was from one lesson to another what you're describing um with sort of lack of lessons and coming in a little bit later is exactly how I think if I ever went to a university to study something, that's how I think a university is. Now, I'm sure 
there are people out there who went to university and they were like, no, 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 it was constant classes and constant studying. However, whenever you see on TV and you or you see, um, you know, university type kind of programs, they're just sitting about there, you know, oh, I've got a class at three o'clock. Oh, I haven't got to go in today, um, which might be fine if you're learning to become, I don't know, a geography teacher or I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But as a dancer, you need intense training. Um, what was it like? Um, you trained obviously 20 years after me, Bailey. What was it like for you? Was it as intense as I described? So the intensity of what you actually did in your lessons, from the stories I hear, I don't think ours was as intense as that. But in terms of actually how many classes, days of the week, etc., like we were pretty much the same. We would do nine till... It varied when we finished. We'd finish some point between like five and half seven, depending on the day. So there were still almost the exact same length days, really. Um, so in that sense, it was. And do you know what, as well? It, it depended on classes. Like some teachers absolutely were as intense as you describe. And there's definitely some who aren't so much. For example, interesting link between me and Stuart. We were both trained by Stuart Arnold, even though we trained 20 years in between. So there's something there when those teachers from all that time ago are still training, like the intensity there is the same. But I can't say there was many teachers I was trained under that I felt that same intensity of Stuart Arnold. And this is where the real value in those lessons were. You always knew that was, I mean, for me, it was my top lesson of the week. Stuart's like, my God. But there was a different level about a Stuart Arnold and Mark Webb than most other teachers. And there's definitely a drop because when I hear your stories, it's like you didn't have that. Yours was across the board. Everyone was like pushing you to the limit, right? Yeah. Um, it felt, it, it, you know, when I, look, when I think back to my college training, I just think, God, it was, it was intense. It was hard. I was on a scholarship. So back then, scholarship students were expected to like literally, I remember once, you know, we were having to clean the toilets and, you know, always when, pe when, when, when people finished the, 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 the college, the, sorry, the, um, sponsor, not sp the scholarship students would then take over with the cleaning and the take, you know, and putting out the chairs and they'd be there right until the end of the night sometimes. Um, so, you know, but it doesn't sound too different. It feels like it's just be, been these last few years where suddenly we're seeing these these colleges t being t taken over by by university programs, or they're being based at university, and and then we're seeing it. Um, you know, we've had some over the last couple of days. Obviously, we won't name, name people's names, but we we get sent it and it, and the person will say yeah they've just finished you know they they've gra they're graduating from this this college course and they look like first years you know or they look like they they should be going into their sort of second year they just look nowhere near a finished product and it makes me remember that whilst um whilst I've been an agent and, and a choreographer over these last 20 years the people that I often would work with were the ones who had been to the lanes and the performers and been through those um, rigorous sort of training. And whenever I came across someone who had perhaps gone to Kingston or Imperial College or, or um, you know, loads of different sort of um, colleges, universities, which had dance programs, the intensity um, of their training 
you you could tell definitely wasn't as good because it's it's the ballet you know really as a as a trained dancer you need every single day your ballet your contemporary your jazz and if you're if you're getting ballet maybe a couple of times a week it's just not good enough really no it's definitely not that's got to be in the timetable every single day interestingly this is one of the shifts between me being at college to you being at college even though a lot of the changes have even come since I left. Like, we, I think we did ballet three days a week. It weren't every single morning, which sitting here as an agent, seeing the standards, seeing what you need to actually just be able to maintain your body to last. Like, if you do seven days a row in a, of, like, an artist tour, your body has to be built to sustain that and not get an injury. That comes from your ballet. That comes from your body actually being built to move. It's not just about how good a dance you are. It's literally the longevity of your career stems from those core lessons that should be 9 a.m. every day. I think that ballet is a real huge, huge difference. Why do you think that would have changed, Stuart? Like, why would they have reduced the ballet? It's got to be, well, I'm going to assume and I'm going to put my kind of my opinion out there, um, but it's my opinion only. But you know, it's not, it's not fact. We are going, we're, we're going to look into this and, and, and find that reason where, because it could be a financial thing. It could be, you know, the colleges just cannot financially run privately anymore and they need this extra subsist, you know, extra financial sort of packages, which the, a university can bring. When you think like this shift, really, I'd say the first time I heard any story of this, like, oh, I actually only have like two lessons on a Wednesday. First time I heard that was like 2021, post-pandemic. That pandemic is going to have had a huge effect on the colleges anyhow. It's very plausible it's a financial thing. But nonetheless, even if that is where their survival is coming from, it's a worrying thing for the industry because it's going down. I mean, if, if I was to give advice to like a kid thinking right now, should I go to college or not? There's a lot of kids I've seen that are like 17, 18, that are at that age that they should just be going. I'm like, actually, right now you're good enough to work in the industry. Get yourself to London, start auditioning, do some training at base, at Pineapple, at Manor, at Playground, whilst you're there, and you'll be good. You'll work. You'll have a good career. It's almost becoming like the training maybe isn't even as necessary as it was five years ago. Do you know what I mean? I I, I know exactly what you mean. Um because it's all very well us going, well, you should be this, you should be that, you should, you know, you should be able to do seven or eight pirouettes. But realistically, we're doing them a dissatisfaction, a dis, whatever the word is. Dissatisfaction. Disservice. <laughs> yeah. Disservice, yes, yes. I'm a little bit under the weather. I have to, I have to tell the audience today. I'm a little bit under the weather, so I'm struggling. Um, a disservice. It is a disservice us saying to someone, no, you should go and do this, do this, do this. Because, you know, you ask me, you know, what is, why do I think it's, you know, starting to decline? And it's, well, ah, it comes back to this old, do people actually want to be doing ballet every day? Do they want to be being pushed? Are we, have we created a generation of sort of people who just want to be handed on a plate. We've got to that point where I think this is a major factor. You know, do really people want to be, you know, when they think, right, I want to be a professional dancer, 
are they actually really realistically thinking what it takes to be a top class professional dancer and actually does it really matter anymore because the top professional dancers out there now are nowhere near as good as the top i mean you look at if you go back yesteryear um uh, you know i had an example of someone like louis speds wow that is a professional dancer, someone who can, you know, jump backflip and do all these flips and things like that. Now, obviously, we don't need to be as technical um, as that anymore because the technique isn't just isn't being sort of performed or being asked to, you know, given to sort of dancers to do. I think there's also a question of like, what does the industry actually need right now from the dancers in a work sense? Because when we say this about like the top commercial dancers, I can at least name you five. 10 commercial dancers who could do everything Louis Spence did, but you never see any evidence of them doing it because that just doesn't get booked right now. And this is where even like the thing of like, you need to come out of college being able to do five, six, seven pirouettes. Like, I want to say that to everyone, but really it comes from a selfish point as a lover of the art because is there any evidence of that actually being needed in the work? I don't think there is. In your day coming out, like if you wanted to book a West End contract, like you needed those five pirouettes down. Now, like, you're lucky if you see a routine that has two pirouettes in it. So it's even down to what's needed. But then there's a balancing act of, like, why is the work at that standard? Is that because of the standard of what colleges are putting out into the industry? Or is that just that colleges are training the graduates for what the industry actually wants right now? It's like, I don't know what's what they want and what's a limit on what's possible. I don't know if I'm phrasing that well, but hopefully you know what I mean. Well, well, it's going to come to a point where the people who are casting, maybe, or the people who are the choreographers never had that experience of getting to that level. So gradually, it's all becoming just blurry of just nowhere near what it, what it could be. Um, but while you don't need it, what's the point of people like us trying to push it, I suppose? You know, what do they need to, 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 they need to kind of look okay at the moment. They don't need to be, you know, years ago, it was right. You need to be blonde and, 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 and thin and, and, or a guy with muscles and whatever. Now it's, well, come as you are, come as you are. No training doesn't matter. And this is, it's even what's prioritized in the casting process as well. Like, I feel like currently the dancers I put out on jobs, the dancers are more likely to get booked on their image than they are their showreel. Therefore, they're getting booked more on their look than their danceability. When that's the case, how can we expect the standard of dance to be what it was in the 80s? Because actually it's like the dance bit is a thing that the clients care least about right now. Just going back to the university whole thing, because it's like I just think of all the... You know, when we get a CV from someone from Lanes, for example, you know, you can see the technique, you can see the definition. You know, well, that's the hope. Um, if you get someone from Kingston, um, Kingston University, for example, um, you know, a lot of people have gone through there, a lot of dancers. And I'm not saying that you can't get to the top from going to these universities, but it's just it's just the the gap the gap in in technique and the gap in sort of dance knowledge is is just huge and th this now is a scary question of like where is that gap placed right now because i'm like 5 years ago i could see that real clear gap between kingston university to dance college now 
I don't really see a difference, if I'm completely honest. Is it more beneficial if you think on a financial sort of side for a dancer to go to a private college, either their parents or them get into huge amounts of debt or they go to a university where they potentially can get, uh, well, they would, uh, a student loan and then pay it off only when they actually make any money, if they ever make any money. Um, you know, maybe that is coming into someone's sort of psyche of a decision. I mean, if I was having to make the decision to go to college and that was my choosing factors, like, I'd be going with the student loan because it gives you a safety net. I mean, especially when you consider these are like 18-year-old kids and not people who, I mean, some may, but the majority are not going to be kids that have like huge savings that can fall back on or anything like that. Like that safety net at that age is a huge deal. You can see why you'd make that choice. So when we were speaking about this, you said about it's, um, you said it's, it, it, it's, it feels like it's slowly moving into a US model. What did you mean by that? In the US, particularly in the dance sense, there isn't a formal training scene as such. Like, you have Juilliard, but so so few of the working US dancers went to Juilliard that I'd argue there isn't really a scene, to be honest. Their training scene is just, let's take LA for a good example. Their training scene in LA is just getting down to Playground, getting down to Millennium, and work whilst you train. And I, I feel like the UK is starting to replicate that. And to some people, especially in the UK, because we're so used to having these colleges, this formal training, I feel like that might be scary to some people, but what I would encourage you to look at is actually look at the standard of dancers. The highest tier of dancer in the UK are on par with what I would say like the majority of the LA scene is. So there isn't really a disparity in level. And to be completely honest, when I look at LA, I think the top end of LA are probably a little bit better than the general consensus of the top end of the UK. We certainly have some top in the UK that could hang with the top of LA. But as like a collective group, I think LA is a level above. And it does then pose this question, does that studio training model rather than college training model actually give you something extra, which is what creates a higher standard? I think we're moving there. And I think this all links into everything that's going on with Spotlight at the minute, the way at the end of the last episode I described, like the industry is on the edge of a flip. Spotify supports a casting process. Colleges train the kids as the casting process. So it's like spotlight falls, then casting process flips, then what you have to do in terms of training then also changes. And that may be where the studio model comes from. Because another thing with young kids where like right now I wouldn't recommend going to college is those kids who do get in the room at 17, 18, it's like they've got this extra bit of hunger, this extra bit of youth in them that makes people want to do them more of a favour. Whereas when you all come out of formal training in like July of the year, you're 21 years old, you're one of 10,000 new people in the industry in that month. So by that point, no one wants to do you any favours because you're just part of this mass new influence. No one really cares because there's too many of you to even have individuality in people's eyes. It's just like, whoa, there's a new set of graduates. It, there's something to be said about the earlier you get in, actually, the more recognisable you are and the more success you can get. I feel like there's an opening coming here for a US training model to be born in the UK, and especially with the rise of the London scene, manor opening, playground opening. Only five years ago, a pre-based opening, it's like, 
we had Pineapple, the one big studio in London. Now you've got Pineapple, Base, Manor, Playground, four big studios. And to be completely honest, like places like Flow are massively on the rise right now, even though they've been around for a fair while. Um, like the Hub Studios, they're going up and up. We've almost got like six, seven, eight major training studios in a five-year period. It's bound to change things. It's interesting that you, you know, when you say about in the United States, from my experience, uh, when I did go over and sort of, um, you know, take, uh, teach lessons to Americans was that locally there, they've got, you know, everywhere, every state has their, you know, a very, very strong dance sort of section. If you get I me, mean. when I was, working in um in houston um the dark i remember just, just when i just teaching the warm-up yeah just teaching the warm-up the energy that i got from those kids and when i say kids they were sort of teens up to adults they were just they were awesome they were awesome and you know the the standard of just this sort of local you know i went to a few studios in in houston and the standard of there was incredible. Um, so by the time they get to, uh, you know, going to LA or going to New York, they are of uh, just unbelievable standard. And, you know, the house, the speed of how they picked up choreography was, was like, you know, it was, uh, it was unbelievable. Um, have we, I was just going to say, have we got that standard locally? Are the kids, you know, you you, you do, there, there are some obviously dance schools where you, you see these kids and they've got their legs right up here and they're doing, you know, and they've come from more of a disco background. But have we got that strong enough to really create a strong enough, um, a strong enough sort of level for them to come and then go straight into at the manor and playground and, and places like that. I feel like we actually overlook the standard of localised training we have in the UK. We have these incredible local schools that because we have this formal college training scene that's normal, these schools are then sending kids out to colleges which actually could go straight into the industry. Just to drop a couple of names, like this one is biased, this is my home school, but I genuinely believe this. Like Hatton's up in Scarborough, shout out Julie. She has loads of kids who have gone out straight into the industry and work. And you've got like the loft in Coventry. All of their kids are incredible. Nadine Kennedy Wood up north. I can name you so many schools that have that standard to go straight out, but the kids want to go to college instead because it's normal. And it's genuinely not needed. It's like they actually lose three years of their career by doing it. They could have had another three years of working, and especially dance like short-lived career. We want to keep hold of those three years if you're good enough to work in them. Do you know what I mean? And equally, like, what's the point in paying, it's like 20, 27,000 now, I think, 27,000 for three years training. And you don't really work in those three years. Or you train in the college scene and work at the same time. Uh, sorry, you, you train in the London studio scene and work at the same time. And your work is then paying for your training it becomes much more affordable to actually get to the level you want to be at. I, I actually think there's something much healthier in the US model, to be honest. I think Bailey is going to need one of your little stats and figures for, for a future episode of, <laughs> you know, 
if you spend, let's say 30 grand, right? Because most places now are 10 grand, the colleges. If you're, if you're 30 grand over three years, I think what we need to do is, is to look at, let's take half of that, 15 grand. Where, how many lessons would that actually get you? And it's like, you know, if you are, if you are the best in the class at, I don't know, Josh Warmbreeze, he's going to use you. He's not going to care whether you went to college or university. So, you know, you know, how many classes do, do these people teach in a week? Let's say, let's say, I don't know, two, let's say two or three classes. Uh, a class is what, a tenner? You know, so that's 30 quid a week, maybe, on getting in with a top choreographer, you know. Um, and it, it, yes, I, I know that some you can't get in with, you know, for example, Ashley Wallen, for example. He doesn't. I, you know, he doesn't have a class in England, so it's going to be hard for you to get in with him. Um, but most of the, you know, a lot of the choreographers do. And if they don't, they have workshops. And if they don't, it's probably better to be spending your money going out where they're going out and getting in with them. I don't know. We'll, we'll need something in the future, I think, to, to try and uh, to see whether spending 30 grand, what can you get for 30 grand? Uh, what I've just pulled from what you're saying now as well is like there's something to be said about being able to design your own timetable. For example, like me at college wanting to be a commercial dancer. I had Matt Webb. I had Stuart Hayes. I had James Robinson. Like, love them all. If they were in London, I'd still have gone and trained with them. However, you do sit at college and you go, yeah, but Wilts have got Josh Warmby. Um, Addicts have got Phil Birchall. Daz Davis is at Performers. I want them as well. Actually, if it was in London, you can then go, I'm a commercial dancer. I'm going to that one, that one, that one. But I'm not a jazz dancer, so I'm not going to turn up to like Lucy Jane Adcock. It's designing what's going to fit for your career. Then the musical theatre kids that hit hip-hop don't have to go to hip-hop class. They can just keep going to MT classes. It should actually create a better standard. I remember, let's go back to Stuart Arnold. It's like a special episode today. Stuart Arnold always used to say to us in class, it's like, Trying to train to become a triple threat is the worst thing you can do because you need three years in every single genre. And it's given me an echo of that of if you want to be a commercial dancer, you need three years training as a commercial dancer, not three years training as a generic all genre dancer. If you want to be a ballet dancer, you go to ballet school. So if we want to be a commercial dancer, why do we not go to commercial school? It's because commercial school doesn't exist. But in London, you can create commercial school in your own timetable there's enough classes it's interesting because i never thought i would be at this point where i'm where i'm starting to think god is you know is it worth it is it worth it paying all that money going through all that stress you know it's not because it's parents it's there's so many people it affects around you when you have to borrow that type of money or you have to get that money or you know i've heard parents you know selling selling houses to get their kids to college and stuff like that um to you know and if these parents knew the truth of it if the parents really understood the realistic sort of realist realism of 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 now I doubt they would, would, would spend their money. They would say, no, you look, go make your timetable and, you know, and I'll fund that. 
Um, but it's not gonna, you're not going to spend 30, you're not going to spend 10. I don't know. We'd have to, we'll have to do some figures there. I think in terms of a lesson by lesson, it probably is cheaper. Cause I remember when I was, when I was at college, like reverse engineering our fees to our timetable, it was like every class on our timetable actually cost like £2.50 or something. So direct value, there's something in the formal college training. But I think it's that transition of work paying for the training than just paying for the training that changes things. And it's like we have plenty of first years in this country that book pants up. Why can't they book several jobs in the year? And it's like there's this bad thing in the industry of like, oh, but you shouldn't leave college early. If we were just in a studio training sense, then it's not leaving college early. It's doing the job when you've got a job and then it's going back to training again. Then you've got a job call, you go, you do that job, you're back to training. And then actually, it builds this ecosystem of consistent training your whole career, constantly topping up, keeping at your optimum. Because again, this is something we always hear. In terms of like the physical state of their bodies being able to endure these grueling tour schedules, etc. The optimal point for a dancer is their first year out of college because they're just off the back of that intensive. And we, while some people do consistently go to classes and like, big up them it's not as normal as it should be especially for people to go there as intensely and routinely as they should i mean to compare to another industry when a boxer has a boxing fight they go into a 12-week camp when we have a dance job we don't go into a 12-week preparation period for that job and that's you could say that's because we only found out about the job of two days before it happens but it's not a good enough excuse this is why you should be training whenever you're not working Again, I feel a like US scene encourages that. People's um, preparation for a job is waking up, having a coffee, <laughs> having a quick stretch, and get running out, get, getting to rehearsal. Um, ah, you know, I know if um, you know, obviously our our audience is building all the time, but I'm not sure how many how many old school sort of teachers um, or college sort of owners will be watching this yet <laughs> but you know I, I know there will be a lot of people out there who would disagree with us and say no what are you talking about you need to have college training and it's not good enough but we're coming from it from an agent's perspective we are seeing everyday cvs and showreels sent to us which ah oh, man are just not they're just not good enough they're not they're not um you know, we'd love to take everyone on. We'd love to, you know, when we, every day, in fact, let me, let me just explain to, to, to the audience. Every day we have a, a meeting and in that meeting, we always start with any CVs and photos that have been sent to us because our prime, you know, our main thing as an agent is we want to represent great talent. So, so even though we have, you know, a, a big book of, you know, re representation of dancers, we're always looking for new talent and we're really optimist or optimistic every day. Um, and we give those people, um, the time we look through their CV, we look through their showreel. Um, but it's getting more and more disappointing and to the point where lately I've said this person doesn't look like they're even a maybe a going into their second year and they're saying they've graduated. Um, so we're not just making this out of thin air. It's something that we are seeing every single day, it seems, isn't it, Bailey? Oh, for sure. I mean, another comparison with this, there was a few college showcases that I went to last year 
not going to name names because I don't want to get into whole damaging reputations on that. But what I will say is the standard I saw on stage, I was like, whoa, like when I was at college, I used to help out with the auditions for like the kids trying to get in for the next year group. I've seen, I'd say the general standard that I saw in those auditions when I was at college were better than the third year standards that I was seeing on stages last year. And I was like sat there being like, this is like scary. What what has happened to the industry? This is where like, there is a thing in us where it's like, we never thought we'd sit and have this conversation of like, maybe college training isn't needed. And I think that's because 10 years ago, it was at such a higher standard. You could sell these benefits all day. You could back it up. As hard as I try, I really struggle to find anything right now to back it up. And it's because of the way it slipped. It's not even a hatred for college training. Rather than going on a US model, I would love to see us revert back to the standards of 10 years ago. But it's not the way I see it going. What I'm seeing developing is a London studio scene. It's a hard one. Unless you are receiving CVs and photos every day, you're not going to see the, the decline. Um, you know, we're so stooped in sort of tradition that it's got to be this way and i'm i'm exactly that no it has to be college it has to be this it has to be that as a choreographer whenever i um you know had people on a job and someone wasn't trained um they were the ones that would always be you know watching out for and feel like oh god you know i have to be right on them welcome to the new chapter in your wellness journey brought to you by unbound breathwork the proud sponsors of this podcast. Dive into the transformation power of 9D Breathwork, an immersive experience that combines ancient briefing techniques with state-of-the-art soundscapes to guide you into profound states of relaxation and healing. Unbound Breathwork's online sessions are your portal to deep healing, accessible from the comfort of your own space by visiting www.unboundbreathwork.com you can turn any room into a sanctuary of peace and self-discovery. Seeking solace from stress or a path through trauma, our sessions are crafted for deep healing from within, offering a tranquil space to breathe, release and rejuvenate your spirit. As a special thank you to our podcast listeners, you can now get an exclusive 50% discount on your first session. Just enter the code 3RINGS50 at checkout to unlock the full potential of Nandi Breathwork for half the price. If you're curious and want a glimpse of the experience, there's a five-minute session sample waiting for you on the website. It's a sneak peek into the powerful journey that awaits. Stay connected on Instagram at Unbound Breathwork and join a community committed to breathing, healing, transforming and thriving together. Don't let this opportunity pass you by. With the code 3RINGS50, your transformation journey is just a breath away. Visit the website, sign up and embark on a path to a rejuvenated life. Remember, the road to healing begins with a single breath. Unbound Breathwork is here to guide you every step of the way, breathing new possibilities into your life. Big thank you to Unbound Breathwork for sponsoring this episode of the podcast and kindly sharing this promo code for us to share with our listeners and viewers of the podcast. Our next, our next topic today is last minute casting. Does it benefit anyone? Now, Bailey, <laughs> um, oh man, last minute casting. You'd think it would, it, it should never happen because why would anyone want to be working in the panic? But why don't you describe, why don't you describe, um, what, what 
why I'm why we're talking about this. What what is last minute casting? Unfortunately, in the casting industry at the minute, it surprises me when I see something that isn't last minute that isn't rushed. So it, it's like this big elephant in the room that needs to be addressed. The amount of times we get jobs sent through to us, whether that's from casting directors, directors, producers, production companies, everything is just crazy last minute. And it just doesn't allow the optimum job to be done on anything at all. Because I might be naive to say this because I don't know what really happens above. But on our level, I always feel like it's not actually understood the amount of work we have to do to get the next stage of casting, get a package to that client. We get the job in, we dissect it, then we have to go back and ask questions on it to make sure we've got all the details. Then we put an AV check together for our talent, send that out to them, then need to give them fair time to reply back to that casting because there's some agents out there who maybe go like, well, if you if you reply with an hour, I'll put you up. We're not doing that. I, like It's about respecting your talent. I expect our talent to be on a shoot. I really hope they're going to be on that Hollywood film shoot that they're not even allowed their phone on set. I don't expect you to respond back until 7, 8 o'clock at night. And to be honest, I don't even expect you to reply back then because it's out of hours. I expect 9 a.m. tomorrow morning. And this is what I feel like is overlooked. And they want they come to us wanting a package in two hours. And I just sit there and I'm like, physically not possible. If you want me to rush it through, I can do it, but it's going to cause more problems for you down the line because then no one's AV checked. So the second you send me casting invites, no one's available. Surprise. And then you have to go again, look at more people, send more casting invites. Shit, no one's available again. Do it again, do it again, do it again. You never get anywhere. If you actually just give the full time that we need, 12 hours, 24 hours, you only have to do each bit once and everything gets done. Everyone's chilled. Everyone's happy. None of us have anything to worry about. I feel like there's something going on above that needs to be addressed. What do you think that could be? Well, I think there's two two things to this. There is one the, at the bottom level and there's one at the top level. The top level I don't understand because I just don't understand why if you have got a massive project, if you're the client, and this is why I cannot believe it's the client last, you know, they think about their, their campaigns sort of, you know, six months, a year down the, b- beforehand, what they're going to do. I can't believe, and, and you see this in Marks and Spencers, for example, or um, John Lewis, or whenever they're, they're doing Christmas commercials, they're not doing them in, uh, <laughs> you know, December. Uh, they're doing them months beforehand. It's like um, casting for pantomime. They're not casting for pantomimes in December. So at the top level, I always think, right, well, Surely it can't be the client thinking last minute, oh, well, we suddenly need some models and we've got a shoot booked. It can't be that. At the bottom level, I think perhaps it could be because you look on 567A or Facebook things, you know, quick last minute, you know, job come in. Now, it suits them because if it's quick and last minute, you can get someone quickly and and, and an affordable price because there's no time to, you know, right, this person's going to neg- uh, want to negotiate. Forget them. I'll take this person because this person just has just said, yeah, I'll do it for 250. I'll do it for 100 or whatever. So it suits a certain kind of client to get a rush and to, you know, uh, 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 and in negotiations, 
the quicker you can push someone, they're going to be more willing to go, oh, okay, and then make a quick dis- discussion. But at a huge higher level, I just cannot believe it's the client coming last minute. What What do you think? Again, we might be naive saying this because I can only guess what goes on above. But we know for a fact the creative brief gets made six months in advance. That creative brief involves the roles that are in there. So the only reason I can think of that this is happening is the client brings the actual job to casting at the final minute, at the final stage, unnecessarily. Now, why would they be doing that? I can't think of any reason other... I, I can't think of any reason other than that... Other than that our industry lets them do it. For example, me and Stuart were talking about the other day, and I used an, an analogy of if your child wants chocolate and they punch you to try and get chocolate, if you give them it, then next time they want chocolate, they're just going to punch you again. Actually, if you say no and don't give them the chocolate, they're going to work out a better way to get that chocolate. Mm-hmm. It's like we need to dare to say no to the last minute. Allow one or two projects to fall apart. And then they'll learn their lesson and actually start going, yeah, that six months ago when we knew what roles we wanted, let's just bring in casting then. Let's get people booked in advance. No one needs to worry. Everyone's prepared. Everyone's good. It reminds me of uh, when we first, years ago, Rudai, we... Um... The first time we got a phone call from Schwarzkopf, the the hair hair brand, um, they were all over the place. Um, can can you do this? We need we need we need fifteen models, and we need this, and and it's going to happen next week. Blah blah blah. And we did we sorted it out, and you know uh, what? But what we made sure that we said to them, right, this is not how it works, and then. Next time, and then for the, all the years that we worked for them, it was always, right, we have a show coming up way down the line and we need to, you know, when do we need to cast? And we would say, right, you need to cast here to get this, to get that, to be everything to be booked in. And it's creating, I guess, relationships with clients to be able to say to them, right, this is the best way to cast. It's not the best way doing it last minute. Um, and I, you know, we're, we're always talking about weakness, weakness within the performing arts, you know, weak performers, weak agents, weak casting directors. Is it that casting directors are so, oh, well, I can't let that job go to somebody else because if, if I say no, they'll go to someone else. But, you know, surely the best say no. No, I'm either too busy or I haven't got the time. Um, you know, if you want to employ me, then I need this amount of time to do it. Um, that said, that said, just to finish off that point, that said, if, if Beyonce suddenly rang us up and said, look, I need dancers in, in, uh, in four hours. (laughs) Yeah. What are we going to do? Sorry, Beyonce. I mean, it's not going to be Beyonce, but whoever her management is or whatever, we're not going to say, sorry, we're going to do our best to do it. You know, we're not going to say no, are we? And I think that is exactly the problem. We wouldn't want to say no. Everything in our body would feel, just say yes, just do it, we'll make it work. But that's why we're in the mess we're in as an industry. It's like we need to actually detach from that personal thing of, oh, but we could book a job with Beyonce. No, fuck it, detach from Beyonce. 
we don't do last minute casting. This is a last minute job. I'm not even acknowledging Beyonce is attached because I feel like the only answer is to say no. That's the only way we fix this. Because I don't think for a minute last minute stuff is going on and the directors, the producers, the casting directors aren't having a word in the client's ear and going, I'll do it this time, but next time it'd be good if I can get a bit more time. I think that conversation is happening, but it's obviously not having any effect. And to bring it back to the analogy of a child with their chocolate, if your child punches you for chocolate and you give them it but go, don't do that again next time though because I won't give you it, they don't believe you. They think you're full of shit. So those next time, punch you again. She'll just tell me that she won't give me a next time, but she will. It's like that that must be what's going on for it to be as rife as it is right now. So we need to stop trying to play nice and just get concrete, say no, and let things improve. At the end of the day, like, to, I feel like every episode I bring it to supply and demand, but it is supply and demand. To enhance the performance, traditionally, you can go back 100 years, all the best performances in history that people remember have dancers. So they're not going to suddenly decide they're not using dance just because the dance industry upset them once. They will come back. It's not as big a risk as we think to upset them. They need us. They're coming to us because they want us. We shouldn't be flipping that to we want them. They they are the ones that bring it to us. We need to align with that fact. It doesn't benefit anyone doing it quick. You know, for us as agents, there's nothing worse having to harass a performer who has only just, you know, you know, they've only just been told about it. And we're, oh, look, can you do it? And can you do it to, you know, do it? As, I know you've been on set all day, <laughs> but can you now go home and do this and do, you know, it, it it just doesn't the whole the whole process it doesn't need to be stressful um you know we were going to call this casting on a friday <laughs> because we you know uh, it's always a friday where suddenly people are stressed out and they want to they want to cast something and then they're trying to get agents and performers to work over the weekend and it's like, well, hang on. If you haven't sorted out your client to come to you on a Monday so you can cast and get everything done by Friday, I, I just, why on earth would anyone want to work at the weekend, you know, and rush through to get it for the Monday? It just doesn't make sense that the weekend is, is, it's time to go and, you know, Saturdays is the day of spending money on, in shop, shops and, and, you know, and going to watch football or on Sunday it's going to church or I don't know, you know, whatever people do. But it shouldn't be, you know, we work during the week. We shouldn't be working. You know, we're not, it, it's not needed. And it's a knock-on effect down the chain as well. It's like if the director agrees to work the weekend, then the casting director has no choice. And because the casting director is doing it, then the agent has no choice and the talent has no choice. So we're all locked in. It's like whoever is the direct line with the client has to be the person to say no. Otherwise, we're all just in this mess. Like, us as agents, sometimes we will be strong with it. It's like, no, I'm not doing that. Go to someone else or give us more time. But th there isn't many people out there who will do that. Just because you're willing to work the weekend doesn't mean you should be forcing anyone else to do it. If you're the person responsible for everyone else's decision, you have to hold strong no matter what your instinct is telling you. You just got to do what's right. I mean, it's, it's, it's everyone, isn't it, really, when you think about it, because it, it, it is this training people, you know, training like a dog, I suppose. It's, it's, it's you've 
us as agents, we've got to take that stand as well. We've got to say, no, sorry, we're not going to run around like a blue ass fire to get over suggestions for probably no one to get it anyway. <laughs> you know, over these next six hours or whatever, it's like, well, you know, it, it's just, it's just not feasible. And, and, you know, we're going to, we're going to, we, I reckon we could do a whole podcast on casting director language. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's these very sort of, oh, um, a quick but easy one to cast. You know, there's these things, these little kind of things that they say to, to get us thinking that, oh, it's okay. You know, one last project before we, you know, before the weekend. It's like little things like that. It's like, no, no, we want to, we want to go rest. We want to chill. We don't want to have to work like dogs over the weekend. And I think this last-minute nature could also link back in with topic one as well, of the declining standards in the industry. Because it's like if you want available suggestions within three hours, you're only going to get suggested for people that aren't working that day. Talent rises to the top. Chances are the best talent are the ones that are working and can't reply in three hours. So how do you ever cast the best person? And even down to self-tapes, if you give them an overnight turnaround, you're never going to get the best self-tape from them. And then even down to last-minute jobs where someone comes knocking the day before, we need dancers on set tomorrow. Okay, cool, I can give you these dancers, but they're on an overnight shoot till 2 a.m. and they can turn up for you at 10 a.m. if you want them. They're not there on set at 10 a.m. doing the best possible job. We need to be able to prepare. And this is where it comes back to that ongoing training. Boxer has a 10-week training camp. Actually, if we book in advance just like we know creative is made six months before, I can then do six months training for that job. It allows this ecosystem to kick in of high level, high quality, delivering what the client wants, not delivering a rush thing that just bodges the job. It's like last minute casting is like the dance equivalent of cowboy builders. It's just a bodge job. There's a few dancers, they've done some steps, it'll be all right. It's not incredible artistry. It is. I, I like that. I like that. It is. Um, you know, it's 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 just this whole kind of uh, you know. I can I can hear anyone listening. Um, if you're from, you know, some organisations, obviously we wouldn't. If if we did get a call, you know, if someone was on a shoot till two, we probably wouldn't be putting them on the set at ten a.m. But uh, see, this is the thing. We wouldn't, but many people do. I've seen and heard of it happening month after month. It's not uncommon. We're, we're the strange ones that we don't do it, which, again, is terrifying to say. Well, you know, in the past, um, I mean, I've turned down some amazing things in the past because uh, conditions weren't right. Generally, it was more to do with the money. Um, I remember years ago, I could have choreographed a take that. Um, but the money they were offering for the dancers at the time um was just not good enough and i said no and then someone else snapped it up um you know which at the time was annoying and maybe i should have should have should have just said fuck it you know fuck the dancers but we've got to take a stand we've got to have some kind of backbone um and you know it's it's right through whether it is the choreographer uh, whether it's a choreographer, a casting director, an agent, you know, everyone's got to have that backbone to go, right, let's actually turn this into a professional way of working because this is it. There is, there, there's nothing else where sub, things get cast, uh, put, you know, 
right, okay, we need this person to do a job. There's going to be a process. There is no process. It's it's right. Our process is going to be done within a couple of days and it's all going to be a rush. And we just want to see as many people as possible. And and you're going to work in chaos and in in, in um, with anxiety until we get back to you with, oh, yeah, we want this person. And then when we do want that person, we need you to rush quickly to tell them to confirm them in and to get them in because we need to get you the details because we've got to get the flights. Hurry up. We need we need your costume, your 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 sizes. And it's it's like, what the fuck? Calm the fuck. Calm down. No one should be because it, it ruins the fun of it. It ruins. We should enjoy what we do, not be stressed the whole time because of because someone hasn't dared to say no. We can't class this in two days. We're going to need a couple of you know a week. A week, I think, to cast something is 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 more than enough. Just go over that process again. From so you've got the client putting fine. Go go on. So client emails me. I've got the brief. Nine times out of ten, there's information I need missing from that brief. So I'm back and forth with the client, getting the answers I need. Perfect. I've now got everything. Now I assess it. So that could that could take a, cu- a day, a couple of days maybe? Yeah, yeah for, for sure, for sure. Uh, I'd say average is like 24 hours. Um, so back and forth with the client, you gather all the details. Then you assess it and go, am I happy with this for my dancers? Am I happy with this as an agent? If the answer is yes, perfect. And I'll put an AV check together. Again, you've lost another hour there being thorough with your work. I then put my AV check together. I then need to pick the dancers who fit it. Another hour gone there. Then send it out to those dancers. They're on set. They're working. They're on shoots. They can't reply instantly. So then I give 12 hours, 24 hours. Come back to me when you can. So now we're a day and a half, two days in. Now I can present a package of great, high standard, working, available dancers. Give you that. Now you've got no more issues. You don't send me an audition and no one's available, sorry. Don't send me a sort of They can't do it overnight. We need that optimal time. For me, you know I love a quote. This whole last minute casting thing for me is summarised by with great power comes great responsibility. It's back to that thing of if Beyonce calls us and wants dancers, we've got that self-interest of, I want to give Beyonce our dancers. But actually, we've got to align with our responsibility, not our interest. Otherwise, we're just screwing everyone else over for our own selfish gain. We have to stop doing that. We're doing it in every other way, apart from time, which is interesting when you think about it. You know, every other thing has been on the agenda, whether it's with equity or Dancers Network or, you know, or or, you know, the stage highlighting things. Every other Every other part of it is being picked at, but not the time part. The time part seems to be, oh, that's just, that's just it. You know, there is no other option apart from just rushing. Um, and I think it's definitely something needs to be looked into because it just creates, as you said, a cowboy type sort of industry of trying to get things over line as quick as possible. Um, and yeah, it's just not, it's just not the way to work. We don't work like that. You know, and we don't want to work like that, but we ha- but we have had to work like that in the past because we don't want to let our talent down. So it's very tricky. Right, Spotify Wrapped. 
<laughs> it's Spotify rap time. Now I have no idea what Spotify rap is because I don't have Spotify. Um, but it's a big thing apparently. First of all, um, we're using this Spotify wrapped as, as a, as an in really to solve an argument really. But, um, what's so big about bloody Spotify wrapped, Brady? Yeah. So Spotify wrapped basically Spotify tracks your listening history throughout the year. And then at the end of the year, it gives you a breakdown of like your listening patterns. So it'll give you like your top five most listened to artists, your top five most listened to songs, what genre you listen to most, how many hours of music you've listened to, all sorts of data, which is just fascinating to see. However, whilst that side of it is cool, what I find fascinating, not necessarily about Spotify rap, but Spotify rap highlights it is the way the music industry is so data-driven. And this almost, like, enhances an artist's career because they, it gives them leverage in a negotiation. They've got these facts and figures that they can put out to get a client going, do you know what? I really want to work with Justin Timberlake. I really want to work with Rihanna because they've got a million monthly listeners. They've got three top ten albums. And it just draws these parallels to the dance industry with me of like, how do we create that same level of leverage? Because on an artistic level, we are no different. Dance art is just as great as music art. But in a commercial value sense, it doesn't even touch the surface. And I think it comes down to data. I have no idea how we do this, but I really believe that we need to find a way to bring data into dance. What's your thoughts on that, Stuart? Don't guess you've got a miracle and you know how to do it, but what would your thoughts be on like the importance of data for artists, I guess? If you look at sport, for example, two times world heavyweight champion, you know, three times gold medal. Um, should we be doing that with, you know, four times Brit Award performer um, or, you know, five times... Um, their own workshop tour i don't know you know but it's it is it's i think at the level of office sometimes for for example if if you are a choreographer wanting to do a workshop tour the level of client they're taking it to let's say a small dance school they're possibly not going to be that bothered by too many facts and figures um so there's a whole sort of section of work that actually it probably no one would care because they've only got a certain amount of budget to pay that choreographer or, you know, for a workshop or whatever it is. Um, they've only got a certain amount of budget. However, once you start putting data in uh, on a more commercial kind of feel to, you know, look, this person, if you use this person, it gets you this amount of likes or it gets you this amount of um, views or it gets you this amount of profit. I think that starts would be very attractive for clients. Um, and we're starting to see that over the last few years with the use of social media followers, you know, now a dancer who has, um, you know, maybe, oh, well, this dancer has danced, you know, done a few tours. Back in the day, it'd be like, well, that's all they needed. They've done a few tours. They're going to get booked. Now it's like, well, who do I pick? The person who's done a few tours or the person who's done a few tours but has got 30,000 followers. So 
data is being used in a sense of social media followers. Um, how we can use it more, I'm sure you'll be able to come up with a solution. But um, it's, you know, it's, it, it's hard because, again, it's, you know, is all the data that we're given, even though the data, you know, the jugs don't lie, you know, the data shouldn't lie. You can, there is that famous book, you know, Bill Gates' famous book, How to Lie with Statistics. Does it actually mean, you know, that you're guaranteed this or you're guaranteed that amount of profit or that you are this, what this, the data says? For example, we had a very, very lengthy, last night we finished our meeting and I thought, oh, Gonna, you know, I haven't been that that well. I was going to have an early night. We finished it. Then two hours later, <laughs> we we were still uh, we hadn't finished it because we went on to the subject of of you gave me the data behind Taylor Swift, and then we had this, <laughs> had this massive. Um, at one point, I thought that was it. We're gonna we're gonna fall out over this. Fall out over Taylor Swift. It's a fair reason. Well, you were trying to tell me that. Got, well, what was it? You were saying that Taylor Swift is the most, she's had the best year in history and she's the most successful artist. That's what you were trying to tell me. I think definitely one of the best years in music history. I don't know if it would be the best, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was. Obviously, that's very opinion based. But I mean, just when you like look at her career, this is really where our like dispute stemmed from of, I can't help but say, like, Taylor Swift is easily in the top 10 artists of all time. Like, maybe not as iconic as a Michael Jackson or Elvis, but I don't think she's far from it. I think she ranks way, way up there. And it's like, Stuart just couldn't disagree more. And it's just a really interesting, like, generational divide where, for me, I feel like I can understand why you wouldn't, because I expect myself to say the same about, artist x as opposed to taylor swift in 20 years so i understand it but i still like struggle to grasp it so much because i like wholeheartedly believe it well when it comes to data i actually couldn't then disagree really because the data says that she has had one of the you know she's selling this and she's selling that and she's she's streaming this and like but i don't know you know the day it's well, I watched a podcast last night on Take That, right? And there's, and you know, for me, Take That have been one of the most successful British groups of, of all time. But then uh, then I looked at their data and they've only sold 14 million copies um, over, I think, eight or nine, ten albums or something. Um, That's crazy because they were in, er- in an era of physical sales as well, weren't they? Like the last couple of albums, fair enough, you expect that, but... Like the '90s stuff and the like, 2006 comeback. Like you'd expect that to be high, man. That's crazy. Well, the problem is everyone was buying music there, so it was kind of spread out. I think nowadays you get one artist that everyone buys, and it doesn't seem to be as spread. Well, I don't know. The data might tell me I'm wrong, um, but uh, you know, it, we we went from this data driven kind of uh, conversation to then you know talking about artists and and uh, you know and you trying to convince me that taylor swift was one of the greatest artists of all time and i'm like no way there's just no way but and well 
I then came up with the argument, well, in that case, Westlife, Westlife, you know, they've had um, 15 number ones or something, more number ones than anyone apart from Elvis and the Beatles, I think it was, like, which is just crazy. You know, Westlife were just, I don't think they even had one song which was their own. It was all covers. Um, but the data is there. Yeah. And there was something in that when you came out with that where I was like, could this actually distort our view of who was great in the future as well? Because if they're the record holder, let's say like when the Elvis film came out, was it a year ago, two years ago, Elvis was then like the most relevant artist again. In 20, 30 years, if they bring out a Westlife film, could that generation actually sit there being like, Westlife were the biggest boy band of all time? Because it's so easy to make them believe it because the record is there. And I find this really hard to comprehend in an opinion sense, but like when you look at the statistics, like can you argue it? Have we actually got a distorted view and they're bigger than we give them credit for being? Like, well, I don't know. I mean, I went, um, how we got into this initial conversation was that uh, I went to watch The Prodigy. Now, there might be a lot of people watching this who are your age, Bailey, who probably might not even have heard of The Prodigy. Um, and, you know, it was, for, they did Ali Pali, it was packed, phenomenal. You know, they've, they've had a sold out tour um, and now they're on to their European tour. And they've been going for, you know, since the early 90s, they have, since the early 90s. And it made me think then uh, about the groups that have kind of lasted and the ones who have come and gone. For example, One Direction, you know, One Direction at one point was the success they had at that point when they were, you know, they were number one here in the UK. They were number one in the America all around the world. I mean, they were huge. And it's like Harry Styles is seen as this kind of Mick Jagger type of person, but he hasn't come from a, a Rolling Stones, you know, but the figures might say opposite. This is where there's a really tough thing as well about like trying to like place current artists alongside the pre-established one thing that I've been thinking about since we had this conversation yesterday is like the way that artists would fit into each other's eras. For example, like if I pick up the Beatles and drop them in 2023, I don't think the Beatles... They're at number one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like brand new Beatles, like take 60s Beatles and drop them as a band starting out in 2023. I don't think they get success making the same music. Whereas I really believe you can pick Taylor Swift up and drop her in the 1960s. Here we, and she, here we go. And she still does because I think there's something about the genre, to be honest, because it's the country music side, not the pop stuff that she does. I love that as well. But it's like Evermore, Folklore, the albums that I like really like rave. They're artistic. And I think that you could even pick up and drop in 1800, guitar around the campfire, and everyone would still love it. It's like, I feel like it's like universal music whereas michael jackson drop him in today probably still succeed but drop him in 1940s 50s big band and i think they'd hate it it's like what actually artistically carries across the board that's where i say like she deserves that status ah it's very hard isn't it because when you're living see i i i, I was saying to you i think you know, I think Britney Spears was much bigger than Taylor Swift ever 
ever had been. You know, there was a period where she was mahusive. I remember going at um, my partner at the time, Charlotte, her granddad coming in and saying, have you seen that Britney Spears? And this was like a 70 year old guy, you know, and he had seen Britney Spears in her. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he liked it because she, she was in her school costume. Have you seen that Britney Spears in that school costume? And everyone, that baby one more time was huge. Everyone knew who Britney Spears was. Would an old person know who Taylor Swift is? Um, now I, I do know it's a different time because then we only had five channel or four channels and the radio, you know, there was only a few radio channels and everyone knew what was in the top 10 and, you know, in the top 40. So it is different time, but I don't know. It's very hard for me to look at Taylor Swift and think that she's anywhere close to. I think this like thing with Britney as well. It's like relevancy versus artistry. Like, no doubt Britney at her peak was bigger, but take Hit Me Baby one more time. Yeah, it's a catchy song, everyone knew it, but break it down artistically. Is that actually good music? Whereas I genuinely believe you can take a Taylor Swift song, break it down, and you go, that is incredible. Same way you can with a Michael Jackson, same way with Elvis. Like, that, there's a level above in there where, I mean, to be honest, I think right now Taylor Swift is actually as relevant as peak Britney Spears. But I think there's an extra level of artistry, which is what takes her into this category above. And I feel like that's the same reason Michael Jackson is at the top of his era. Beatles are the top of theirs. It's the artists that really carried the artistry in that era, not just the artists that made huge songs. We can name so many artists from the 60s that we all know the one big song of, but none of us can name anything else now. So, so you think when people look back at... Uh, what are we in? The, the No, what is it? The 20s? Like, I say when people look back at like the 2010s, it's Taylor Swift. See, I would look back, I would say, hmm. See, I would say it's like, I don't know, maybe I'm just coming at it from a, from a, you know, like your parents. It's <laughs> finally getting old. You, you know, you, yeah, finally getting old. But it feels like since the noughties, there hasn't been there hasn't been anything like there was that's what it feels like there wasn't you know there it, it feels like music died in, in the in the noughties and we haven't had anything since which has taken on a michael jackson a beatles a david bowie rolling stones kind of feel you know um but it's because I'm not listening. And I'm sure to you, you know, you always go on about Justin Timberlake. See, I, I, I'm biased on the Justin Timberlake end. Like, I love Timberlake, but I I can't even consciously put him in that picture. It's just that I love it. I, I feel like, like... I was going to say, I think he had a moment, you know, when he had that justified. Is it justified when he came out with um, Like I Love You? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, debut album, yeah. Yeah. At that point, he was, that was something special. That was a moment in time. That, to me, as a, I suppose, as a dancer and choreographer. See, this is the thing. Does it, you know, are, is Taylor Swift, because we've, because we now have the ability to, right, okay, for your genre, you've got this radio station, you've got this pro, this, this, this channel, and you've got this, this, this. Because we've got it all split, 
are we ever going to get an artist that was as big as Michael Jackson or as big as the Beatles? Are we ever going to, you know, because now if you don't like Taylor Swift, you can go throughout your whole life and not see it. I don't see Taylor Swift apart from when you pipe up about her, but there'll be a whole level of people, whether it's kids, teenagers, Bailey J. Mears, who are loving her and seeing her and that is part of their lives. So is it that we just now all have our own little avenues and we don't have to get into a, a, a fad or a, a moment in time? But I, I don't know if that hasn't always been the case. Because it's like you're in that Michael Jackson one because you were in the Michael Jackson fan. Like that's your era. So you're going to carry that artist. And I feel like that's there when that's when my era carried Taylor Swift. Your genre is not meant to do that because you're Michael Jackson. Funnily enough, I'm just seeing a, a notification of one of our one of our well trained clients <laughs> um, is trying to ring me. But I know this person who we've got trained knows our timelines, <laughs> so it's gonna it'll be fine. I'll talk to him afterwards. But yeah, I feel like this is this was the start of our start of of our wrangling, which we're not going to, because we're going to have to finish in a minute. But, but, ah, it's like everyone had an opinion on Michael Jackson because he was everywhere. If I went outside, I don't think I would find, I would struggle to find an opinion on Taylor Swift if I just went outside. Where if I went outside now, uh, 30 years ago, and said, the word Michael Jackson, anyone in the world, I think, would have had an opinion. And I, and I really think it was because of the fact that you turned the TV on, he was on every channel. You turned on the radio, he was on the radio. Where now I turn the radio on and I'm turning it on to my specific channel that I want to listen to my specific artist. But then does the fact that that's changed dictate that the artist can't be as good because i feel like because it's changed in 20 years time if you go out in the street you're going to have more people with a, an opinion on taylor swift still than you will on michael jackson and where i say this is like we can't name the artist who was big in 1910 but i bet the people in frank sinatra's age looked at that artist as their frank sinatra it's like there's an era gets left behind every time at some point, Michael Jackson will get left behind, but Taylor Swift will still be just about clinging on relevant. Then at some point, she'll get left behind and people are talking about people who we'll never even hear of. You see, yeah, but you say that. Frank Sinatra has stayed and there was there would have been loads of Taylor Swifts around Frank Sinatra, period. But Frank Sinatra stayed. Michael Jackson has stayed and there was loads of artists around his era. I don't think Taylor Swift... <laughs> I don't think Taylor Swift is that artist that is going to stay. I don't think there are any artists nowadays that will stay. See, I, I think I, I think that's really silly to say because the genera the generation are always going to carry their artist. That's why the Beatles are still relevant because Beatlemania. For example, I know the Beatles because my great uncle will talk about them. My generation, when we're great uncles, will talk about Taylor Swift. So. I can't conceive that it doesn't carry the same way. It's like Frank Sinatra is the last, the oldest one still relevant now because he's the oldest one who still has people alive who were his era. When they go in 10 years, Frank will fade into the distance. 
and then Beatles will be the oldest one. 30 years, and they faded as well. 50 years, Michael fades. 80 years, Taylor starts to fade. How dare you say Michael will fade? <laughs> but I mean, even then, can, can um, you genuinely say that Michael Jackson is as big right now as he was when he was active in like eighties, nineties? No, no, I can't. Um, no, <laughs> no, I can't. Well, well, hang on. <clears throat> Let's have a look. How many artists have got a wet, uh, a Broadway show on and a Cirque du Soleil show? Let's have a look. Uh, let's look at the data. Taylor Swift, zero. Michael Jackson, two. Actually, he's the three shows, isn't there? I think he's got, I think, I think there's two, I think he's, there's two shows going, knocking about. There's definitely a Broadway and there's definitely a certain slate. Yeah, there's two Broadway. <sighs> two Broadway. Are, are they going to have musicals in the future of Taylor Swift's music? Yeah, Come I on. would absolutely say so. <laughs> Oh dear. Right, well listen, we need to have we should we should, you know, we, we need to get your comments down below, please. You know, I I, I am I am I crazy? Did uh, should we be going by the data that says that Taylor Swift is the one of the biggest artists ever, basically? One extra thing. If we were in a data driven industry in the eighties, do you genuinely believe that Michael Jackson would have significantly higher numbers than Taylor Swift does right now? Yes. Really? Hang on, hang on, hang on. Say that question again. Do I believe... Do you believe that, that if, ma- yeah. if if there was a data-driven industry in the same... Let's pick Spotify up and put it in 1980. How dissimilar are Michael Jackson's numbers then if streaming was possible to Taylor Swift right now? I don't think there's a noticeable difference. Maybe a few million. What do you think? Oh, I don't know. I mean, it, it, the, the, the thing is, Taylor Swift has been consistent she's never been a phenomenon and and i think that's the difference between michael jackson and the beatles and elvis they were phenomenons and you know you know i I, yeah don't get me wrong i I can you know the more you go on about it the more i can i I listened to fucking taylor swift last night on my own i did yeah i did um and you know, it's, 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 I listen, I, I said, um, I said, Alexa, plat. Oh, here it goes. <laughs> Alexa, stop. No, that, that was take that. Um, uh, I said, can you play her biggest album? And it came up with 1989 Taylor's version. Oh, so it's just played um, the newest one. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah, which which is obviously her biggest one because doesn't lie. Do you know what I mean? She knows her. She knows her, her, her data. It, it would be the biggest right now. I don't believe it would be the biggest ever. Well, but, it must be that they're they're doing it as that was her biggest combined that album. You know how if you have, for example, Thriller. There are very there are many different versions of Thriller. There are you know the gold anniversary version, the the Halloween version, but it's still Thriller. So maybe that's why. Um, you know, I, I I get it. I just can't see. You know, we need to have this conversation in five years' time, and and, 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 and you know, you can't deny if someone's still around in five, ten, fifteen, and she's you know she she could be because she's young. 
You know, we're not talking about, I mean, how old is she now? Um, in her 30s? Early 30s. I'm not sure yes, exactly. Yes, I mean, she, she's got a long, you know. So she, she's 15 years deep into a career already and she could still have 20, 30 years ahead. And in terms of numbers, like, she's already way, way up there. Like, I, I checked the data last night. She's the eighth highest physical sales of all time in an era that people don't actually do physical sales. And she's still got more albums to come. The only person above her that I think is still going to release anything else is Eminem. I tell you, if, if, if you guys would have listened into our conversation about Taylor Swift last night, God, it was like we'd finished work, we'd done everything we need to do. I was ill. I wanted to go to sleep, to be honest, have an early night. But he Bailey had to hammer his point about how good she is. Um, so I'm going now to go listen to more Taylor Swift to uh, to see if she's got any 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 decent songs which come anywhere close to Jacko. What are you what are you up to now, Bailey? I've got to do the same. I've got to go enjoy some Taylor Swift folklore. You should listen to Michael Jackson, yeah? And uh, actually, listen to Take That. Um, there's a podcast out which, uh, well, they're doing podcasts at the moment because they've got a new, new album. And I can't believe how old they are. Um, but then I'm thinking, if they're old, I'm old. So, uh, yes, but good on Take That. They've got a brand new album out, which is brilliant. I, I've been listening to it and it's, it's, it's very good. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting. Who will be the artist 20 years time that will be left from nowadays? Will it be Taylor Swift? Quite possibly, quite possibly. Taylor or Drake, isn't it? Oh, don't, don't, don't start me on fucking Drake. Oh my God, again. <laughs> uh, Bailey, do you want to, do you want to tell people what they need to do? Yeah, so if you've enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe to the channel, click the like button, give us some love, and turn on the notification bell. Then next week, in teaser, we've got a special guest. We'll be back to you with another great episode. Yes, we have got a special guest. We won't say just in case they, they ditch us last minute, but um, yeah, it should be a good one. So look out for that. Thanks a lot, Bailey. Uh, we actually have a meeting in a minute, so uh, I'll see you on the other side. See you then, man. See everyone next week.